You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our podcast is featured on the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at allindianapodcastnetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle or me at leadersandlegends.net. And as always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash IN. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Helen Rappaport. She is a phenomenal, best-selling, highly respected historian, particularly of the Romanovs, the Russian royal family, and the Victorian age, including the death of Prince Albert. She's written several books and novels. She studied Russian at Leeds University, and she has translated several works from English into Russian. We are no, the other way around. From Russian into English. Thank you so much. I apologize. <laughs> I'm You're not correct. that good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, today, we are discussing her fantastic book. It's called The Race to Save the Romanovs, The Truth Behind the Secret Plans to Rescue the Russian Imperial Family. Helen, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. You're very welcome. It's good to chat. So... We could spend 50 podcasts talking about the Romanovs and the Russian Revolution and the relationship to all the other royal families. My favorite line, one of my favorite lines is Bismarck's when he called Germany the stud farm of Europe. Yeah. Wasn't sure if it was a compliment, but we'll take it as such. But I decided to read this book because I I'm, I'm, was fascinated. I'd read a biography of George V, the one by Jane uh, Ridley. Yeah. And that her treatment of this was very strong and it got me interested in it. I read your book. I really honestly couldn't put it down. It's one of those books or events in history. And the way you wrote it was so, you can tell novels were part of your curriculum vitae. No, I'm not a novelist though, Robert. No, no, no. I'm talking about 
reading them and weaving oh, yeah. it into your sense of history because yeah. the the way you tell the story it, you make the reader think that it's going to end differently than it does oh, i wish yeah um, but it doesn't fact, I, I think really i have a very cinematic sense when i write all my books which i do, i I used particularly in the very first Romanov book I did called um, Ekaterinburg, The Last Days of the Romanovs, where I had a, um, a kind of 14-day scenario a countdown to the murders. And I think that comes from years and years ago, having been an actor and being aware of what's dramatic and how to juxtapose scenes. And I do kind of think filmically when I write my books because my primary objective always is that the reader should not be in, be bored, that they should be engaged, that you should keep it interesting. You shouldn't get sidelined with lots of turgid, boring facts. Well, as I said, you know, the story, the ending of the story is well known, but the way you told it made me think that, you know what? Someone's going to rescue them and it's going to be okay. And instead it mm -hmm. ends ended just the way we thought it would, or we knew it would, I should say. Let's let's give a little bit of background for the audience. Um, Nicholas II is the czar of all the Russias. He, is, he came to the throne relatively prematurely because his father, the imposing Alexander III, is it kidney failure, kidney issues? He yeah, died? he had developed um, uh, kidney disease in his 40s and died very unexpectedly in the autumn of 1894, um, at a, not long after Nicholas had just become engaged to Alexander of Hesse. And it was a dreadful shock, of course. Uh, I mean, the worst thing for Nicholas was that he was totally unprepared for the throne. He, he expected his father, by the law of averages, to live another 20 years or so. So he was absolutely thrown in at the deep end. And worst of all, they had to bring his marriage to Alexandra forward. It, they weren't going to get married till the following year. But because he suddenly became czar, they decided, you know, they ought to get married, you know, in, in order that she could be a support to him. As stars. So it was all a very, very gloomy business, getting married in a hurry on the tail of a funeral. And in many ways, the kind of start to his reign was viewed very fatalistically by Russians. And they talked of Alexandra as being a funeral bride and that they felt that even the reign as a whole was doomed because of the way in which Nicholas had become Tsar so unexpectedly. His grandfather, Alexander II, mm. was assassinated by a bomb mm. and ended sort of the, I'm going to say loosening of the reins, but the enlightenment a little bit, modernization of the Russian society and economy. Alexander II was known as the Tsar who freed the slaves. He dies prematurely, assassinated. His son, Alexander III, is a bit of a reactionary, to say the least, a hugely big and strong man. Um, mm. I've read where he, he made fun of Nicholas. He, he thought he, he almost, I think, openly referred to me as being a bit of a girl. You know, he, he was uh, not physically strong like him, although he did become quite a fitness freak as the years went on. He didn't have that imposing manner, a very authoritarian manner that Alexander III had. So 
um, Nicholas had a, a huge job taking over from a very repressive autocratic czar. And there'd been a, a big backlash during Alexander III's reign to the horrible assassination of um, Alexander II, who was blown up on the streets of St. Petersburg. Alexander III was known to be to to take fireplace pokers and tie them into knots. That's well, how strong. there are all these stories about him being <laughs> sort of huge, huge giant bear of a man. He certainly was very strong. Nicholas, in his way, actually was quite wiry and physically incredibly fit because later on um, in his story, he was a prodigious walker, outdoors man, loved kayaking and riding and cycling with his children, toboggan, you name it. He did a lot of hands-on sporting activity with his children. But, of course, the counter to all that was he was a dreadful chain smoker. In yes. fact, they all were. All the, the women as well were appallingly heavy smokers. Nicholas II comes to the throne, I believe, in 1894. Uh, it's, it's a troubled throne. 1905, the Russians shockingly lose to the Japanese in the Russo-Japanese War. Mod that's a bit of a backlash. They want the society loosened. They want it more modern. Nicholas, would you say that he wanted to do a lot of the things that, quote-unquote, the people wanted, or... He just wasn't able to overcome the bureaucracy. Um, I think Nicholas's problem was he was terrified, terrified of change and reform. And the only way he could deal with being Tsar, because he was rather an unimaginative ruler, was to just take over lock, stock and barrel, everything that was done in the way his father had done it. So no concessions to reform and modernization, although economically and industrially, Russia was modernizing and moving forward. But in terms of constitutional reform and uh, loosening the reins of power and allowing a proper constitutional monarchy, he was terrified and he dug in his heels. But when there were these big protest marches in, in the, the winter of 1905, after the debacle, the terrible debacle of the Russo-Japanese War, which should have been won in a few months and was an absolute disaster. Um, there were these protests and, you know, Cossacks notoriously fired on unarmed protesters and there was a massive clampdown and Nicholas was told in those uncertain terms, you've got to democratise, you've got to make some concessions or you're going to have a full-blown revolution. So... As a result of the protests, he did concede to the setting up of a state Duma, a state government, which had sort of nominal powers. But every time it sort of um, stretched, uh, spread its wings a bit and tried to push for reform, Nicholas closed it down. There, in the short space of time between uh, the first Duma uh, and the outbreak of the revolution. There, but there were about four Dumas, and each one was shut down by Nicholas when it became, uh, you know, demanded too much change. He was petrified of change. And he also was obsessed, as was his wife, that the monarchy, the autocracy, the traditional Russian imperial um, autocracy should be passed down to his son, as it has been handed down to him, because he had this kind of kind of mystical belief, you know, mm -hmm. 
that 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 was inviolable. It had to be passed from czar to czar, and so he resisted change. His wife, in fact, was even more fanatical about uh, preserving all the traditions of the monarchy. And this is, I think, one of the sixty-four thousand dollar questions. So maybe we should upgrade the value of that now. <laughs> seven, How about we million. make it worth? We make it worth a, a called a Fabergé question. <laughs> a Fabergé um, egg question. Yeah, if he maybe had had less pushy wife, if he hadn't been married to a very domineering woman as Alexandra was, um, who was even more reactionary than him. He might have been pushed into concessions because Nicholas was quite malleable. And that's his tragedy, really, because I think if he had conceded to change, if he had allowed the introduction of a, a constitutional monarchy along the lines of his cousin Edward VII in England, um, things could have been different. Um, they might have averted revolution. And that's one of the, the great tragedies, really, because Russia was moving forward, was becoming um, more, um, more of a power, you know, more, becoming more on a level with Western Europe, people taking more notice of Russia. It was no longer this dark, sort of Byzantine, obscure place. It was taking its place in the modern world. You mentioned his wife, the Tsarina. She is from Hesse. Hesse by Rhine, which was one of the squillions of German duchies. <laughs> there were a lot of them. I always get muddled up with them all. But anyway, um, Hesse by Rhine uh, was a fairly modest duchy. But um, Queen Victoria took a particular, in, particular interest in Ale um, Alexandra and her sisters from Hesse by Rhine and tried very hard to steer them because they were the daughters of her daughter, Princess right. Alice. She had married um, Louis of Hesse, Hesse by Rhine. Um, uh, Prince, uh, Queen Victoria was quite keen on steering these very pretty sister, four sisters, uh, and different four sisters to my four sisters, of course, in the direction of strategic marriages. And she had actually wanted to marry Alexandra off to the Duke of Clarence, who was Bertie, i.e. the Prince of Wales's eldest son, but he unfortunately upped and died of probably <laughs> pneumonia uh, yeah. in, I think, 1892. Um, so Alexandra by, uh, had met Nicholas quite young because obviously the Hesse family and the Romanov family, you know, they mixed and met each other on the European network of royals. Um, she had met Nikki quite a few years earlier when she was only about 12, and he had set his cap at her. He was determined he was going to marry her. And so um, finally, after waiting pretty much 10, 12 years, he did persuade her to become engaged to him just in the months before his father died. So, And that kind of was the fatal Fatal beginning, really, that marriage, because, like I say, a different woman, a different wife, things might have panned out very, very differently in Russia. You're listening to the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Helen Rappaport. She's a historian, does a lot of TV commentary as well. And we're discussing her book, The Race to Save the Romanovs, The Truth Behind the Secret Plans to Rescue the Russian Imperial Family. 
While all this is happening with Nicholas's family life, there's also the greater strategic situation in Europe where you have two different camps of armed countries hoping that war necessarily doesn't come, but preparing mightily for when the war could come. And that is Italy, Austria, Hungary, and Imperial Germany on one side, Russia and France on the other side with Britain kind of being entente cordiale, a benevolent friend. How did the European situation in terms of nation states and industry gearing up for war, how did that affect, as in a short answer as you can, I'm sorry, I know it's a long question. How did that affect? I don't know how I can answer that. I mean, the main thing about the build up to war, first of all, was Nicholas was extraordinarily reluctant to go to war. It was only 10 years on from his disaster of the Russo-Japanese conflict where he'd come out with his fingers burnt really badly because it had, it had been expected that he would achieve a very quick victory there and it didn't happen. But he had this entente cordiale with France. He had a lot of loyalty to his British cousins. And a lot of, you know, in a lot of it in the end was down to family connections and family loyalties. But fundamentally, when Nicholas was drawn into the war, initially he did so declaring war on Serbia because of the assassination there of Franz Josef, because it was his duty as Tsar. This is going back to this kind of religious messianic sense of the Tsar's role, which was to protect Slavic peoples. And his duty, he felt quite very seriously, it was his duty to, to protect the Slavs of Serbia. That's why he initially went into the war. And he was very loyal to the Allied cause, you know, insofar as he was able, despite, you know, the looming threat of revolution in um, his own country. But of course, the Allies were constantly preoccupied with goings on in Russia in that sense, because they could see the writing was on the wall. They could see the Romanovs were teetering on disaster. And the one thing the Allies, Britain and France, were absolutely obsessed with was if anything went down in Russia, they had to keep the Russians in the war. Uh, And of course, the minute the Bolsheviks seized power, they wanted to get Russia out of the war and do a deal with the Germans. The war starts in late July, August of 1914, right around the same time we were recording this. You mentioned that Nicholas was reluctant to go to war. Did he see it, in your view, as a double-edged sword? In other words, if we win, I'm back, you know, all glory to Russia. But if we lose, I may not be around to see it. I don't honestly know the specifics of it. I'm sorry, I can't really answer that. Basically, Nicholas was a very humane and caring man. He just dreaded the bloodshed of war. He dreaded a major conflict and was totally reluctant to drag Russia into war and all the economic consequences of funding war and, and relying on, in Russia's case, a largely conscript peasant army who were under-equipped and not very well-trained. But did he, in, in a, ask it a different way, perhaps, do you, in your research, find that 
either him or a close member of his family knew or suspected that a war on this scale could lead to some sort of revolution? I haven't looked into Nicholas and the war. I'm sorry, I can't really answer that. He made the decision, I think, in 1915 to become commander in chief of all the Russian forces. He did that for various reasons, too many to go into here. Uh, But by all accounts, it did not go well. Do you feel it was one of these that this decision is one of the decisions that put Russia on the road to the Bolshevik resolution? It was an absolute fatal mistake when Nicholas made the decision to take over command of the armies on the Eastern Front. Firstly, because his uncle, Grand Duke Nikolai Nikolaevich, he was known as Nikolasha, huge, great tall man, was pretty popular, though he had been accused of incompetence. But the trouble was Nicholas was even less experienced and even more incompetent, and he was just overwhelmed. But the worst of it was when he went off to the Eastern Front, he left his wife in control in Petrograd. And because things were gathering, trouble was gathering, he wasn't getting enough um, detailed information on the truth of the situation in Petrograd. So when trouble started brewing in the winter of 1917 in February in Petrograd with riots and strikes and various protests, she underplayed it all to him at the front. And in fact, I think del- in a way, Nicholas was deliberately misled about the severity of the unrest in Petersburg. Petrograd, as it then was during the war. If he'd really known what was going on and how desperate the situation was becoming, he would, excuse me, he would have gone back to Petrograd and taken control of the situation. And again, it's another what if. He might have been able to avert trouble by clamping down hard on the unrest. But Alexander dismissed it. She thought it was because it was you know, they were all hungry and fed up and uh, that once the weather turned really cold, they'd all go back home and sort of shut up. But they didn't happen, of course. (laughs) And by which time it was too late. Um, In 1917, there are two revolutions. Talk to us a little bit, please, about the one that took place, I believe, in March of 17. Well, it's Depends which calendar you're on. Russian February, still, if you're on the Russian calendar, yeah, is that right? I mean, and, it's February and October in the old calendar. Um, the one that I, I find most interesting is February, because February was the product of genuine protests. And it started on International Women's Day with mainly women, mothers, going out, parading and marching down the streets, uh, calling for bread wanting food to feed their children, wanting an end to the war. And um, that was kind of the the women's protest was seized on by more belligerent elements who then kind of fomented political demands. And the whole thing snowballed into quite a violent um, situation in in that week in February, March, which culminated in Nicholas abdicating the throne again ill-advisedly and he realized later he'd made a mistake in doing so but he was at a distance from Petrograd and was prevailed upon to think 
that by abdicating, he'd be able to unite the war effort because one of the big problems in the war by then was mass desertion from the front, terrible disaffection with the war, public opinion was not supporting the war anymore, and there was all this political unrest in the capital, and he thought, well, if I abdicate, maybe it'll unite things and it'll save Russia. So he did it misguidedly or not, with the thinking he was doing the best for Russia. But of course, what happened was the provisional government that uh, came into power after he abdicated was a real mishmash of very disparate political elements, from the old old sort of right-wing landed aristocracy to socialists and moderates and liberals. Um, And they could never kind of organize themselves into a truly efficient and cohesive government. And because of that, eventually in October, the Bolsheviks took advantage of just a weak and useless provisional government, when in fact, you know, they weren't that powerful or that well organized themselves. But they did it because they seized the initiative when the provisional government were in disarray. You mentioned that Nichols's decision to abdicate was a mistake. If you were with him and he's discussing this with you, Helen, what would you have told him to do? Go back to Petrograd straight away. But, of course, he should have gone two weeks earlier. And the interesting thing is, of course, as Alexandra said at some point afterwards, well, if she'd been there with him at the front, she wouldn't have allowed him to abdicate. (laughs) She would have said literally over my dead body. The last thing on earth she would ever concede would be to give up the throne that she wanted to preserve for their darling boy, the haemophiliac Tsarevich. There is no way on God's earth Nicholas would have abdicated if his wife had been with him at the time. Do we fully understand the momentous decision this was? I mean, you know, you have... We read in history books about abdications and executions and that sort of thing, you know, whether it's Edward VIII or Louis the Sixteenth, the list goes on and on. But for a Russian czar to give up the imperial throne, that is, is it, is it fair to say unprecedented or it's such a huge event that in 2023, it's hard to fathom what it meant, how big it was. Well, Nicholas, I actually never really clung to power, not um, not in the way other czars did. He was fundamentally a loving father and fan who didn't really want the job and didn't really enjoy the job, to be honest. He much preferred spending time with his family at home, with his children, and being quite an ordinary bloke. I think George V said it. If I remember, no, no, the Kaiser said, that's it, years later, that Nicholas would have been perfectly happy to be a country gent growing turnips, you know, he a country gent farmer. He wasn't really a, a power hungry in that way at all. He was burdened down by this dreadful sense of duty and responsibility that the baton had been passed to him by a almost an accident of birth that he'd been born into the job. But uh, he didn't cling to power. I don't think so, no. What happens in between the time of the first revolution, the Kerensky 
Trotsky sort of provisional government revolution. And then six to 10 months later, the Bolshevik revolution, also in 1917. What, what is the Romanov family doing at, in this time period? Well, after Nicholas abdicated on a train in a railway siding at the Russian front, he was put on a train back to Petrograd under arrest. His family, meanwhile, the Tsaritsa and the children, were all at the Alexander Palace under house arrest. So they were all held there together when Nicholas returned, while the provisional government wondered what the hell they were going to do with them and tried, you know, to lobby for one of the European um, governments to get them, take them off their hands effectively. So they were held at the Alexander Palace under house arrest until the end of July 1917, by which time things were becoming very unstable. The Bolsheviks were organising and in early July attempted to, uh, a takeover and an uprising, but it failed dismally. Nevertheless, Kerensky's government, the provisional government, he felt that it was no longer safe to hold the Romanovs at the Alexander P Palace. Sooner or later, the mob were going to go out there and storm the gates and try and lynch them. So he decided that they had to get them out somewhere more safe, uh, well, well away from kind of Western Russia. So they were put on a train and taken to, to Tobolsk in Western Siberia. And from August 1917, they were held there, again under house arrest, but not too strict. I mean, they did at least have the ability to exercise outside where they could see people and they could wave in the windows. And at first they'd been allowed once or twice to go to church, but the, eventually the regime got tighter and tighter there. And what inevitably, inevitably happened after about six months at uh, the governor's house in Tobolsk, through the terrible Siberian winter where they were actually frozen in, that's why it was quite secure, because all the river waterways serving Tobolsk were frozen solid. Nothing could get there. Um, the, the, by now, there was civil war building in Russia. The whites were organizing out in, in eastern, eastern Siberia. The Bolsheviks did a deal with the Germans taking Russia out of the war. And the revolution was spreading east out of Petrograd and Moscow, along the Trans-Siberian Railway, effectively. And it reached a point by April 1918 where um, the Bolsheviks, now in control, realised that even Tobolsk was not going to be safe for the Romanovs, not that they particularly cared about protecting them, but they were useful pawns and they wanted to keep them alive for the time being. So it was then decided to move them even to an even fiercer stronghold, a real Bolshevik stronghold, the industrial city of Yekaterinburg. So at the end of April, um, Nicholas Alexander and Maria, one of their daughters and some of their staff were taken to a house called the Apartiev House on Vosnesiansky Prospect in Yekaterinburg. Uh, and a little bit later, about three weeks later, the girls and Alexei, who'd been sick, followed with the rest of their retinue, most of whom weren't allowed to go into the house with them. So by May 1918, they were locked up 
and they really were prisoners by then. Uh, they had no real freedom because they were locked up in this house on the first floor of the Apartheid house with a very, very heavy guard uh, and not allowed any post or any visitors. And they were really cut off from the rest of the world. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. Our guest today is historian, author, translator, Helen Rappaport. We're discussing the Romanov family and her book, The Race to Save the Romanovs. It's a terrific, terrific read, especially if you're into that sort of early 20th century history. The book is called The Race to Save the Romanovs, The Truth Behind the Secret Plans to Rescue the Russian Imperial Family. There were lots of reasons, and you detail a lot of them in your book, why why the Romanovs didn't survive. But what who is and what role did he play? And that is Grigory Rasputin. Who was he? Why was he important to the to the Tsarina? Because and did he did his that unpopularity of that whole situation help catalyze the revolution? Uh, I do get a bit weary of Rasputin. I'm sorry. I really get bored because I think he's been overhyped. The whole thing about Rasputin's been overdramatized, misrepresented. I think he's the most demonized man in history. Yes, he had um, a relationship with the Tsaritsa because he was able, supposedly, to exert some kind of auto-suggestive powers to stop the attacks of bleeding that the haemophiliac boy had. But he'd been murdered in 1916 because of his close relationship with Alexandra. Unfortunately, by the time he was murdered, and with the connivance of members of the Romanov family, um, the damage had been done. He had he he his his um close relationship with Alexandra had bought had brought the Romanovs into disrepute, not that they weren't already in disrepute. But you see, Nicholas wasn't around, in, and and for the time he was around, people suggest that Rasputin was in and out the back door of the palace every day whispering in Alexandra's ear. That simply is not true. He paid, uh, he had occasional meetings with her, not so much in the Alexander Palace, but actually at the home of um, Alexandra's lady-in-waiting, uh, Anna Virubova. Um, the whole thing has been grossly exaggerated. What the problem really was, was the salacious reporting about uh, Rasputin in the Russian press and the, 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 the filthy pornographic cartoons that were in circulation about them, claiming they had a sexual relationship. All that did a great deal of damage to the Tsaritsa in the public perception and to the Romanovs as a whole. So as I say, various members of the Romanov family were conniving to get rid of Rasputin. And in the end, he was indeed both murdered at their behest. But the problem was the whole thing really tragically boils down to this. Rasputin would never have been probably a figure an influence in the Romanovs' lives had it not been for their haemophiliac son. 
And at that time, a child with hemophilia, well, there was no cure. There was no treatment. for There were no drugs for hemophilia. In fact, it was little understood at that time. And when you had a child like Alexei born with hemophilia, as he was in 1904, his life expectancy was probably his mid to late teens at best. And Nicholas was told that. And that's why when he abdicated, Mm. he actually abdicated for his son as well as himself because he knew his son could not survive that. So because the child was a hemophiliac and there was no cure, Alexandra, who was absolutely besotted with her boy he you know he was her world her sunshine would do absolutely anything to to find someone healers quacks gurus seers you know miracle (laughs) workers you name it she would try anyone to try and find ways of keeping her boy alive and that's why Rasputin wasn't the first there were others before him who offered all kinds of potions and, you know, incantations and this, that and the other. So really, in a nutshell, if Alexei had not been an, a hemophiliac, Alexandra probably not would not have come to rely so closely on him. Because the other thing to remember is it wasn't just what he offered in terms of reassurance and helping to calm her when the boy had these terrible episodes. Nicholas and Alexandra had very few friends and they really trusted no one, but they were deeply religious. And what appealed to them about Rasputin, who who was, he was like an old world prophet, a guru. He was to them a religious advisor, someone they talked to a lot about their religious faith, even as much, he was as important to them in that sense as he was um, as a caregiver to Alexei. So he was a very complex and interesting man. And I get very bored with all these stupid stories, you know, about him and Alexandra. Ra Ra Rasputin, that dreadful pop song. It's got a lot to answer for. No, seriously, you know, it really has got a lot to answer for because it's perpetuated this travesty, this myth. And we, you know, it's virtually impossible to get away for it from it still you hear people say oh Rasputin the mad monk well he wasn't a monk and he certainly wasn't mad uh but you know these catchphrases they persist and and you know you, you, it's very difficult to get away from them so essentially he had a fatal influence over Alexandra whether we like it or not and it was as much her as fault for succumbing to all this desperation to find some kind of miracle cure for her son. And that certainly did set the downward spiral, certainly. I mean, Rasputin's murder in December 1916 did mark the very rapid downward spiral to the revolution a couple of months later. While all this is going on, the the post-revolution captivity of the Romanovs, as you mentioned a few minutes before, almost all of these royal families are related somehow, in some way. Isn't it, if I remember correctly, King George V's mother and Nicholas II's mother were sisters? Is that right? They were Danish. They're from Danish, the Danish yeah. royal family, yes. Alexandra the, um, was the sister of Dagmar, who was Nicholas's mother. 
and they were very closely related to the Danish royals, the German royals, they were fairly closely linked to the Swedes and the Norwegians and the Dutch. I mean, all those incestuous marriages had begun with Queen Victoria, you know, marrying mm -hmm. off her children and grandchildren across the royal houses of Europe. Well, in fact, it was even before her that was this convention. Royals married royals, you know, you had to keep the bloodlines going. So they had plenty of relatives, let's put it that way, in Europe, who maybe could have done more to help them. Let's let's take just a couple of three, because I would say that, and this is excellently detailed in your book, George V has suffered from historians and, and from, you know, contemporaneous accounts that he didn't do more to save his cousin. A, do you think George V did all he could? And B, if you do, why does this, why does this history prevail? There is one very simple answer to George V, and I get so exasperated constantly having, not to you, but generally <laughs> constantly having to repeat to people. Number one myth, George did not and never could have offered asylum to the Romanovs. He was a constitutional monarch. He was bound by the rules of constitutional monarchy. He had absolutely no executive power to say, oh, I want you to rush over there and save the Romanos or come here, we'll welcome you with open arms. He had no power to do that. He was entirely secondary to his government and what they advised him. And if his government thought it was completely bad politics to have the Romanovs in England. Nothing was going to change that. But also, you know, a lot of his relatives weren't that keen on the idea. They thought, you know, it was ris too, risking too much to have such a controversial couple as Nicholas and Alexandra come to England, because you've got to remember, 1905 revolution, those street protests, the brutal putting down of strikes and demos, the murder of innocent people. Nicholas had been dubbed bloody czar, the bloody czar, blood-stained Nicholas. His reputation of being a repressive czar had, had, had carried forth since that date. So there was this issue that if the blood-stained czar was given refuge in Britain, there would be riots on the streets because the left and the socialists and the czar haters would all be out there saying, we don't want them here. We're not, we don't want to give them refuge. The other real issue, though, and I still feel it's not been properly evaluated. I tried hard to um, underline this in my book, is the real problem was Alexandra was the German. Britain was fighting the Bosch as yep. they called them then, <laughs> it would have been really political. You know, Germans had been deported or, or interned as illegal aid, unwanted aliens, undesirables. Um, it would have been extremely difficult giving refuge to a German-born Tsaritsa while the war was still raging. And that was another stumbling block. But Jen, uh, also, underlying all that, there were personal antipathies going on bubbling under the surface 
uh, of the royal family. It's very hard to prove, and I'm not going to say it categorically, because if the records were ever there, they'd been redacted or destroyed, or no one ever actually opened their mouths and really said what they thought. But there was a degree of dislike of Alexandra among not just the British royals, but many of her royal relatives. They all found her very difficult to get on with. Let's talk about another cousin, and that is Kaiser Wilhelm II. When people criticized the British government for not authorizing or offering asylum, many of the retorts involved the Kaiser, and that is, why didn't Kaiser Wilhelm make the release of the Romanovs a condition of the Brest-Litovsk Treaty? in 1918, which ended the war on the Russian front. A, do you think that the Kaiser could have done that? And B, would the Russian royal family, because we know Alexandra hated him, would they have accepted this help from the Kaiser? It's absolutely irrelevant what the Kaiser would have done, offered or otherwise, because um, Alexandra and Nicholas both said, they actually stated in when they were under house arrest in Tobolsk, I would rather die than be saved by the Germans. Kaiser Bill was anathema to them. And the one thing that really broke Nicholas, and which is why he so bitterly, I think, um, regretted his abdication, was when the Bolsheviks sold out Russia and did a deal with Germany at Brest-Litovsk. And when he heard of that deal, people said around him, you know, who were with them in captivity, He changed after that. He kind of lost faith, lost hope. It broke him. The 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 you know the deal with Germany broke him, and Alexander was adamant that she would not be saved by the Germans. Kaiser Bill had this wonderful fantasy. I mean, I found a document in which (laughs) he described it. It was pie in the sky. He was going to arrange to the Romanovs to be escorted out by train from Russia on a train. Right through, you know, the 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 lines of the these eastern front would open. The train would escort them out, and they'd be welcome in Berlin and saved by him. As if there is no way on God's earth the Romanovs would ever have agreed to that. And I think that's why, in the end, they resigned themselves to the fact they would rather die in Russia together as a family than be rescued and taken to Germany or separated or sent here, there and everywhere. Um, It was too difficult for any foreign government during the war, really, to take them in. And it's a simple fact. And the other thing people don't ever think about, how do you suddenly rescue seven people from the middle of Siberia in a war? People are unrealistic. And to say uh, one thing I, sh- I should just mention that was not quite accurate. The Brits d- were asked by the government, the provisional government, to take in the Romanovs. Milukov, the foreign minister, contacted the British government and said, please, will you take the Romanovs in? And the initial response of the British government was, yes, we'll do that for the duration of the war. And they had given their tacit um, approval of that 
George initially thought, well, I've got to do the best by my cousins. And they were. They were his first cousins, Nicholas and Alexander. So he initially thought, yes, well, we've got to do our best by them. But within days, he got terribly cold feet. He was told if he had the Ronos in Britain, um, there'd be revolution on the streets and he'd lose his own throne. So there was a very tacit agreement with it just after the revolution, just after Nicholas had abdicated, there was an offer. And if everyone had got off really quickly, off the mark really fast and organised themselves, I do believe they could have got them out within the first week or two weeks of, the, of, the, of Nicholas abdicating. That was the only quick, brief window of opportunity before the Bolsheviks started organising too much and controlling the railways because again a stumbling block of getting them out of Russia people never think about quite aside from the geography of it the distance was the trains the red guards controlled the railways and so if Nicholas and Alexander their children had been put on a railway train it wouldn't have got very far because the Bolsheviks would have stopped it taken off the Tsaritsa and lynched them and so it's it's just crazy to boil all these complex issues down to, oh, it was all King George's fault because he didn't come riding to the rescue. You see, when you take everything into consideration, you can see what an ignorant perception that is. <laughs> it's ill-informed and stupid. How could King George suddenly demand the personnel, the money, the the ships and God knows what, to rush into the middle of Siberia and rescue the Romanovs is actually quite daft. The Romanovs lived in, is it Yekaterinburg? Yekaterinburg, yes. For several months and then... Not very long, from the whole family from May, June to the middle of July, two and a half months. And then... They were executed on the night. No, of... no, no, I don't say execute. No, no, no. That's correct. That's correct. They were murdered. Murdered. They were. I remember that in your book. They were there murdered. There was no due process. They were shoved into a cellar and randomly shot at until they were all killed. And then stabbed. It was horrible. And... and then stabbed with bayonets because the killers were too inefficient and the gun half the guns didn't work properly. And they all wanted to shoot the czar. And well, of the whole he family. died first quickly. He was lucky because they'd all been instructed. There were about seven or eight killers. We're not absolutely certain. They all were told they were all given an individual target. But when Yurovsky, the commandant, you know, said, "Right, you're going to die," they all wanted to shoot the czar and claim the glory. So Nicholas got shot first and killed immediately, but not the the others didn't. And did some servants die as well? They had three servants and their devoted doctor with them down in that cellar, and they were all slaughtered as well. The reaction to the murder of the Romanovs, shock, disbelief, was there some sense that, okay, if they killed the czar, okay, they killed the czar, but they're not going to kill the kids. But they did kill the kids. And did that make the massacre and the tragedy, did it put it on another level? Well, first of all, you've got to remember when the Romanovs were murdered, Russia by then was in year, um, 
in the middle of a civil war. Civil war was raging in Russia. Everyone was exhausted from World War One. Uh, millions had died in the last four years. The death of the Tsar was really a footnote as far as many people were concerned. You know, they had quite, kind of expected Nicholas to pay the price. And so when it, the word got out that Nicholas had died, I think people accepted probably that the Tsarevich would have been killed as well as heir to the throne. But what no one could believe, and it took a long time for the truth to come out, was that the Bolsheviks really would murder those girls, the four sisters, the four lovely girls. And for a while there was a lot of rumours swirling about because the Romanovs did not initially admit to killing anyone but the Tsar, all this rumour and gossip and um, talk started circulating about miraculous survival and them being spirited here, there and everywhere. And then, of course, later on, you get your false claimant, Anastasia, who bedeviled everyone for the best part of 50 years, claiming she was Anastasia. So um, there was a lot of confusion at the time. Um, of the murders and the Bolsheviks never really came clean about it for many, many years. And it's a classic example of fake news. They, you know, they let people run around with all this fake news and disinformation and confusion, and it muddied the waters about their actual responsibility for having killed them all. We are discussing her book, The Race to Save the Romanovs, The Truth Behind the Secret Plans to Rescue the Russian Imperial Family. Just a few more questions, and then we'll get to the five questions we ask all of our guests. Is it true, did I remember reading this in your book, that some of the Bolshevik soldiers or guards wouldn't participate in the murders because they had yeah. grown, close, got grown close to the sisters? Well, you've got to remember, at the Apartheid house, they were up on the first floor, in rooms on the first floor, there were guards on the landing that when they family came and went to the bathroom or, or, or to the to the to the lavatory, they you know, they met the guards, they got to know the guards. And when it came to the night before the murders, and Yurovsky, the commandant, was handing out the guns and saying, Well, you kill so and so, some of the Latvians who were in the contingent of guards refused point blank to kill the girls. So they said the girls were lovely. They got to know them. They chatted to them. You know, the girls will come and show them their photograph albums and talk to them about their families. And they said, well, why should, why must we kill them? There was no, they're perfectly sweet. And in fact, later, I think one or two of the guards said, well, actually, this I was a perfectly nice chap. And if he hadn't been so, you know, I wouldn't have wanted to kill him. So there was a refusal by several guards to kill the girls, and they uh, uh, they seem to have been Latvians. So they had a smaller contingent, a killing contingent, when it came to the actual event of seven or eight, I think. The end of your book does a really in-depth sort of detective work on how we came to know the truth about what happened that night and the subsequent burials, and a lot of the other clearing of the myths. As a historian, was that one of your favorite parts to write of the book? Is like, this is how we figured it out, or at least figured out everything we know now? There's still a lot of discussion and controversy about the 
precise order of events on that night because it was very chaotic and a lot of kind of slightly conflicting eyewitness reports came out in a trickle for many years afterwards. So, yeah, I, I, I tried my very hardest to get to grips with what really happened in that cellar. But in a way, I was much more interested in all the buck passing that went on among the royals of Europe, because I think, you know, they didn't do enough. In fact, they did very little to really try and, 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 and intercede on behalf of the Romanos. And what particularly interested me was the, the contribution of King Alfonso of Spain, who was the least connected, really, to the British royals, who took an interest in their welfare the minute they were placed under house arrest. And even after they'd been murdered and before the news got out, he was making appeals to the Vatican to intercede and, and try and save them. So there were lots and lots of aspects of the book that really, really challenged me and interested me. But my main feeling was that people didn't stop to explore all the extenuating circumstances surrounding the whole problem of getting them out, you know, the, the physical issues, the political complications. It wasn't simply a matter of any king saying, yes, let's get them out, let's save them. It was much, much more complicated than that. Is this a story with more victims than heroes? Well, as such, there aren't many heroes in it, are there? Except, you know, one of the heroes, actually, I've just been writing about, is and his little son, really, and that's Thomas Preston, the British consul in Ekaterinburg, who spent the three months they were hold, the, the Romanovs were held there, constantly, daily, going to the Euro regional Soviet and trying to intercede on their behalf, demanding to know how they were being treated, you know, trying to help them and met a complete, you know, brick wall with the Bolsheviks. So and the other, I guess the other unquantifiable, the one thing that really I could never quite get to grips with, and no one has, is was there, and I think there might have been a last-ditch uh, attempt, not an attempt even, but a plan to try and go in and save them in the spring of 1918 when they're in Ekaterinburg, when word filtered out that they were suffering and not being, they were being maltreated. I think it's possible that King George might have had a meeting, a meeting, that's all, with his intelligence, an unofficial meeting with intelligence people and asked them to try and find out the possibility of getting them out. And I think probably that was investigated, as I've suggested, um, under the guidance of Stephen Alley, who was running agents in Russia. And it was found that the, the place was impregnable. There was no way anyone could get the Romanovs surrounded by, you know, a huge contingent of guards, two enormous palisades, guns, guns trained, machine guns trained on the house, from several different places, there was no way anyone could try and spring them from there without there being a bloodbath. And so I think there might have been a possible discussion of a rescue, but it was never, ever a viable option. Like I say, the only time they could have got them out is when they were at Alexander Palace just after 
Nicholas got back from the front. Your book calls calls the death of the Romanovs, let's say Nicholas for sure, a murder. Assuming that putting the kids aside because they didn't do anything wrong, which is a point that the guards made at the time, right? They didn't do anything. Mm. Assuming that Nicholas and Alexander did and Alexandra did not deserve to be murdered. In your view, did they deserve a trial and did their actions merit execution? Oh, gosh, that's a huge question. I can't really answer, except to say that Nicholas was expecting to be taken back to Moscow to be put on trial and possibly Alexandra with him. He was aware that the writing was on the wall for him and that he may pay the ultimate price. Although I don't think he ever discussed it with his family you know, in captivity. It would have upset them all too much. But I think he was resigned to the fact that the, his head might roll. And the Bolsheviks certainly had planned initially to take them, him back to Moscow and have a big show trial. But things got so different with the counter-revolution and the whites and the civil war. They just couldn't organise it in the end. I think possibly Alexander would have been put on trial too. And yes, they could well have been executed. Um, I mean, monarchs always do, not always do, but generally pay the price. Look at Louis and Marie Antoinette, <laughs> you know, they, they got the chop. But in the French Revolution, of course, they didn't murder their children. Okay, you know, Nicholas and Alexandra may have paid the price like Marie Antoinette and Louis the Sixteenth, but there you know the French um, um king's children weren't murdered, and that is the one thing when I talk to people about it, I think it's the one thing that torments so many people, haunts even the Russians to this day is that the children were killed. Daughters were beautiful. Maria particularly yeah. was the prettiest one to me, but I don't know how these guys, I know the hardened soldiers or thugs or whatever, but how you, you could look all of them in the eye and machine gun and then bayonet them. And, and of course, I should say this one thing, um, the the plan, they, they killed them in the basement of the house. Initial plan had been to take them out in the forest and kill them there because I'm afraid the one thing the Red Guards wanted to do was rape the girls. Yeah. And they weren't given that opportunity, thank God. We have reached the point in the Leaders and Legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests. So Helen Rappaport is following in the footsteps of Gareth Russell and Susanna Lipscomb and Tracy Borman and a whole, whole of your friends. First question, what, is, what was your first job? I couldn't hear that. Sorry, the sound went funny. What was your first job? My first job, employment, like full-time employment. Well, I, that's quite difficult because I always did odd jobs to fill in between acting when I was an actor uh, and then later on when I was writing, I, initially I had to do lots of fill-in jobs, editing, freelance work, writing for part work. So I'd done all kinds of jobs. <laughs> Second question, what was your first concert? What, that I went to? Yes, ma'am. Oh, yes. Oh, this is easy. 
my first concert was the Beatles, 1962, at the Winter Gardens Margate. And I sat in row B and I screamed. And I didn't hear a sound. I didn't hear a word of what they were singing. That may be the greatest answer we've ever had to that question. Amazing. <laughs> and George Harrison had far too much pan stick on. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Which book? Oh, my God. One book. Yes, ma'am. Okay, I'll give you an American book, as most of your listeners will be Americans. Um, Stoner. Do you know Stoner? Oh, God! I don't. I'm sorry. <laughs> right. Well, maybe I should give you a different book. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a cult novel by an American writer, and I can't even remember his name now. Oh, God, this is embarrassing. That's um, all right. We can move on to the next question. Oh, wait a minute. Let me think of a different book. Um, have you heard of The Rings of Saturn? You see, my, my favorite niche books are so obscure. But I don't think anyone. Oh, I can. actually, my one of my all time favorite books. I will backpedal on that. Absolutely. My all time favorite book, because uh, I grew up in the area in the areas where he lived and worked is Dickens Bleak House. Charles Dickens. The mask. Number, <laughs> number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens. Which event would you choose? Oh, crikey. I have no idea. I'm sorry. Uh, with too many, I can't think. Um, <laughs> I was going to suggest the death of Rasputin, but you've already knocked that no, one down. No, I'm not interested in it. <laughs> I think maybe uh, if I I think very hard, I'd quite like to have seen Queen Elizabeth and the Armada when she gave that wonderful speech, you know, to the British mm. ships that are going out. What was it? She said, I may be a weak and feeble. I mean, I'm not even a Tudor. You should ask Susanna Lipscomb this, a Tudor historian. But, yeah, a, a great moment, a great dramatic moment like that of a very fine queen. Part of a king. Number five, if you could have dinner with anyone living today, living today, two hours off the record, just to chat, whom would you choose? Oh, gosh, you should have given me warning of these questions. I don't. I well, then we wouldn't have this. We wouldn't have this delightful reaction. You're lucky uh, we don't I, post the video. You look like you're in pain. I can't think of who would I want to, I don't know, who would I, oh, who do I most admire? Oh, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Paul McCartney? No, no. <laughs> Paul McCartney. George Charles Michael. III? George Michael, but he's dead, sadly. I loved George Michael, adored George Michael. I'm afraid all the people I'd like to have dinner with are dead. George mm -hmm. Michael or, or David Bowie. David Bowie's a great choice. Wouldn't you like to sit down for two hours with Vladimir Putin and see what makes no, him tick? No, I'm not interested in in intellectual chit chat or politicians. You know, sort of cultural heroes. Uh, I worship or female Joni, Joni, who's alive. God bless her. 
that wonderful concert she did in Newport um, last year. I've just bought the album. It's fantastic. Who? Joni Mitchell. Oh, Joni Mitchell. Yes. Uh, Led Zeppelin are huge fans of Joni Mitchell. Uh, well, no, I think really George Michael. I did absolutely worship George Michael. A great voice, the most wonderful, wonderful lyricist and songwriter. You have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, an Indiana-based public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and NFP, a national insurance broker with strong local content. As always, all our podcast interviews are dedicated to the legacy and generosity of P.E. McAllister. Our guest today has been Helen Rappaport. She is an author. She's a commentator. We discussed her book today called The Race to Save the Romanovs, the truth behind the secret plans to rescue the Russian imperial family. This book reads like, even though you know the outcome, the way Helen Rappaport writes it. You're just not really sure. It's a terrific book. It's a wonderful, tragic story. Thank you so much from, for Zooming to us from England. Thank you. Uh, it's been fun. I, I hope my answers to the questions weren't too stupid. <laughs> <laughs> well, no one with an accent like that can sound stupid. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.